I'm glad you came, said Chalmers. He was sitting by the window, and his face was very pale. Two tall candles guttered at his elbow and cast a sickly amber light over his long nose and slightly receding chin. Chalmers would have nothing modern about his apartment. He had the soul of a medieval ascetic, and he preferred illuminated manuscripts to automobiles and leering stone gargoyles to radios and adding machines. As I crossed the room to the settee he had cleared for me, I glanced at his desk and was surprised to discover that he had been studying the mathematical formulae of a celebrated contemporary physicist, and that he had covered many sheets of thin yellow paper with curious geometric designs. Einstein and John Dee are strange bedfellows, I said as my gaze wandered from his mathematical charts to the sixty or seventy quaint books that comprised his strange little library. Plotinus and Emmanuel Moscopolis, St. Thomas Aquinas and Franicla de Bessie stood elbow to elbow in the sombre ebony bookcase, and chairs, table and desk were littered with pamphlets about medieval sorcery and witchcraft and black magic, and all of the valiant, glamorous things that the modern world has repudiated. Chalmers smiled engagingly and passed me a Russian cigarette on a curiously carved tray. We are just discovering now, he said, that the old alchemists and sorcerers were two-thirds right and that your modern biologist and materialist is nine-tenths wrong. You have always scoffed at modern science, I said, a little impatiently. Only at scientific dogmatism, he replied. Those were some of the lyrics from Hounds of Love, the same titled album by Kate Bush, her fifth (laughs) studio record. What? It was her fifth record, dude. Yeah. Running up that hill. I remember that one, but I don't remember any song that had lyrics about Manuel Muscopulus. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't listening. (laughs) No, 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 my friend. Those were not Kate Bush lyrics. Those were the opening paragraphs of The Hounds of Tindalos by Frank Belknap Long. Oh, I like that story. Well, I'm glad you do. You know who else liked that story? H.P. Lovecraft? Yes, he did. And Frank Belknap Long was a close friend of H.P. Lovecraft. They started corresponding in 1920 when Long was only 19 years old. Yeah. And they remained close friends and correspondents until Lovecraft's death in 1937. Long wrote a bunch of stories that contributed to Lovecraft's mythos. And that's why we're going to talk about him here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And who was that reader? And our reader, you may have recognized him from last month. He is the illustrious, talented, and charming <laughs> Greg Johnson. Uh, you need to check out his videos on YouTube. Just go to Greg Johnson on YouTube. You find do a search for him. His name is spelled G-R-E-I-G, Greg. So that might trip things up. But last month, he did a new video every Monday through Friday. That's amazing. So there's a ton of videos up there, and they're all awesome. He's really talented. He's really funny. He is going to blow up any second. This guy is amazing. He's going to blow up. We have an advertiser for this episode. This is a book called The Cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort. It's available on Amazon. We'd spoken to Samuel and he said this book came out of him wondering if the cults that H.P. Lovecraft wrote about were in any way inspired by newspaper reports of cults of his era. Ultimately, he ran across a cult that he thought was the best candidate. He's not saying it did inspire Lovecraft, but it could have. It's a cult called the Royal Order of the Divine Arms of the Great Eleven. In the 1920s, the United States witnessed an explosion of cult activity with California alone, the haven for an estimated 400 secret sects. Among these, the Simi Valley's divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven was most extraordinary. 
a death cult, The Great Eleven was founded by May Otis Blackburn, Portland, Oregon's unheralded filmmaking pioneer, and Ruth Wieland, her luscious femme fatale daughter. Under the auspices of a secret, divinely inspired tome called The Great Sixth Seal, the cult was responsible for myriad dark rituals that horrified the nation when they became public in 1929. A woman was baked alive. Oh, a teen God. princess was poisoned, mummified, and buried ritualistically with her seven pet dogs beneath her parents' bedroom floor. <laughs> Runes were carved into a man's flesh, his heart extracted, and his chest exploded with dynamite. Oh, wow. There were nocturnal rituals, temples, crypts, resurrection experiments, and planned refrigeration warehouses for the dead. The universe was breathing in, declared May Blackburn, and if her followers obeyed her instructions and the teachings of the Great Six Seal, they would partake of a post-apocalyptic world rule by 11 queens from mansions on Olive Hill in Hollywood. Wow. Those who did not obey disappeared. The cult was so bizarre that accounts of its activities elicited expressions of amazement from justices on the California Supreme Court in 1931, who the LA Times quoted as saying, they have never heard anything so weird. <laughs> cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort. Once again, it's available on Amazon. We'll link out to it. Uh, pick it up. It's a, it's a cool sounding book. Yeah. So on to our story, The Hounds of Tindolus by Frank Belknap Long. What do we know about old Frank? Well, I'm going to answer my own question. Oh, okay. He was born in 1901, and he died in 1994. He was 91 years old. Yeah, dude. good work. No, that's not right. He was 90. I meant you. Good work on that math. <laughs> He's 93 years old. <laughs> Gosh, but I mean old. That is an old man. Yeah. Good job. He was a lifelong New Yorker, wrote for Pulps, but one of the bits that I thought was particularly interesting is he wrote for DC Comics, and so he wrote some Superman stories and some Green Lantern. That's right. He went from doing this weird fiction when he was younger, transitioned into doing science fiction. He had a really long career. Unfortunately, when he did pass away in the 90s, I I only realized recently that he was very poor. Yeah. Actually, after he died, he was buried in a potter's field. And when his friends and fans and, and peers found out about that, they actually put together a fund to have his remains moved, which they were, to Woodlawn Cemetery. And they put him in a family plot that's actually not far from the plot where Lovecraft's grandparents reside. I thought this quote was nice from Ray Bradbury, just summing up Long's career. He said, Frank Belknap Long has lived through a major part of science fiction history in the U.S., has known most of the writers personally, or has corresponded with them, and has, with his own writing, helped shape the field when most of us were still in our early teens. And of course, he knew Lovecraft personally, as we mentioned. Long started writing for the Amateur United Press Association, which was something that Lovecraft did as well. Uh, before he started publishing. Lovecraft was very active in the amateur press. And Long had written a story called The Eye Above the Mantle in 1921, was published by the amateur press, and Lovecraft really dug it, so they started writing letters to each other. Not too long after, Long began publishing in Weird Tales. So he got a really early start as a writer as well. Mm -hmm. Long and Lovecraft first met when Lovecraft visited New York in 1922. So this was not one of those relationships like with Clark Ashton Smith or Robert E. Howard, where they actually never right. saw each other. These guys... Uh, saw each other quite a bit, especially when Lovecraft was living in New York uh, in the mid-20s, at which time they were both the chief members of the Calum Club, which I think we've obviously, I mean, we must have talked yeah, about Yeah, we've talked that about that. Mm -hmm. Long's family apartment was where Lovecraft would stay when he would take trips from Providence to New York. Mm -hmm. Long wrote that he and Lovecraft exchanged more than a thousand letters, not a few running to more than 80 handwritten pages before Lovecraft died. Long actually even wrote a biography of H.P. Lovecraft that was called Howard Phillips' Lovecraft, Dreamer on the Night Side. So, of course, we're focusing on his relationship with Lovecraft, but as we said before, he continued to write all kinds of things. He wrote a bunch of gothic romance novels. 
Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that in the 40s, while he was doing some of that comic book work that you talked about, he was also a script reader for 20th Century Fox. Yeah. It, it must not have been a great paycheck from the comic book business. They rarely are. Well, he's an interesting guy, and just a cursory examination of his biography shows that. I agree wholeheartedly. But let's get on to his work. Yes, let's talk about this story, which some people say this is the first story that you would consider as part of the mythos that was not written by Lovecraft. As we heard in the beginning, the narrator, who's called Frank, mm-hmm. uh, he's talking to this guy, Chalmers, and it's not, as I was hoping, Superintendent Chalmers. It's just this guy who's a mathematician slash occultist. Mm-hmm. And he's telling our narrator about how these modern scientists have got it all wrong. And the ancients, you know, they have they had it right. They knew how things were and they covered things that science could never dream of. And the names that he mentions in the opening, these old mystics like John Dee, they're, yeah. they're pretty interesting guys because they were mystics. Obviously, the understanding of the world was quite less advanced than it is now. But they were also mathematicians, and they did help to advance mathematics. Yeah. So it's it's that kind of crazy thing where they were they were using some science, but then they were mixing it up with mysticism. Chemistry came out of alchemy. Yeah. yeah. People doing astronomy and alchemy were trying to understand the world. It wasn't like they were trying to get it wrong. They were really trying to figure out what was happening, how the world works. Yeah, right. Like if you look at one side of John Dee's career, he was a great navigator and helping, you know, expand the British Empire. I think some people say he was the one to actually coin that term uh, as a member of the court of Elizabeth. But then also he was trying to talk to angels, Yep. <laughs> you know, in, the, in those, that period of the 1500s and using symbols and glyphs to try and affect that conversation. So it was, he was trying to talk to angels so he could learn more science, actually. Yeah. But Chalmers is convinced that modern biologists and scientists are getting things wrong. Now, not all of them. He likes Einstein, but what he specifically doesn't like is positivism, which is to say rejecting metaphysics, rejecting mysticism. He thinks that when science does that, it's being too dogmatic. And he especially doesn't like Darwin's theory. He thinks, no, no, these guys don't really have any idea about what man's origins are, Uh, which which led to a bit of dialogue that I really liked because Frank says, well, give them time. And Chalmers says, my friend, your pun is sublime. Give them time. (laughs) Yeah. This guy is awesome. This Chalmers dude. He really is. Very... uh, mustache twirling villain kind of guy. Yeah, he's got good mad scientists speak throughout. And and that tips you off that this story is going to be about some kind of time travel. And he says right away, you know, he thinks maybe he can time travel through insight. Yeah, through perception because he thinks that the best way to alter our perception is with drugs. Yes. And a, a certain drug that he's found will enable people to see into the fourth dimension, time. Yes. And then once you can do this, you'll see that everything that exists exists simultaneously and we just perceive it as time time is our perception right. of of what is of the universe that it's an illusion and this drug can undo that illusion it's pretty cool stuff actually yeah everything's happening all at once we just only see a little bit of it and that's how what we perceive as time a lot of this is his theories about how the universe works and, and such so there's a lot of dialogue of him spouting off a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. but one of the other things he says is that human beings are connected to life on the planet all life Yes. You know, even the single-celled organism, we're all connected. We all are, in a sense, one organism. Just as time is simultaneous, we we are all one. This is pretty cool. Like you were saying, sci- it's sort of sci-fi, but with the mysticism thrown in there mm-hmm. as well. There's the, super, the supernatural element to it. it. It rides that line like Lovecraft does a lot of the time yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's very similar in tone, uh, but th- this has got much more exciting characters in it, like this Chalmers guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's fairly advanced way to think about this stuff. He brings in philosophy as well. You know, I mean, this this drug that he's going to take is an ancient Chinese secret. It's a, it's a drug that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he calls it it's the drug Liao. Liao? Is yeah, it pronounced Liao? I think so. Which isn't a real drug. No, but it's, it's, it's got Liao or Liao because it was used by Lao Tse uh, yeah. when he visioned uh, the Tao. 
And then he talks yeah. about the Tao. And I thought this was a great way when he talks about the Tao to illustrate the concept that he's trying to explore here. He says, Tao resembles an, a great animal, recumbent, motionless, containing in its enormous body all the worlds of the universe, the past, the present, and the future. We see portions of this great monster through a slit, which we call time. With the aid of this drug, I shall enlarge the slit. I shall behold the great figure of life, the great recumbent beast in its entirety. That was a cool way to describe it. So we're, we're yeah. just looking through a little narrow aperture, and that's why we can't perceive the past or the future. It's really cool stuff. This is uh, fun. I'm meeting the story up as we go here. Uh, the whole reason Chalmers has Frank here is because he wants him to take notes mm -hmm. and then to shake him if he starts getting lost in time, meaning that... You know, if he looks like he's in pain or stressed out or whatever, mm -hmm. get pull him back because he needs an anchor. Frank tries to talk him out of it going, like, don't be taking drugs. You don't know what they do. And he goes, no, no, I know what the drug does. And that's not the problem. The problem is me getting lost in time. That's the that's the part I have a problem with. And I need you to be my anchor. And he's prepared himself. He feels ready. And before he takes the drug, he's going to exercise occult power of perception to tune yeah. his mind, which I thought was pretty cool. He's going to stare at a lot of mathematical figures. I mean, that's what these things are scattered around his desk. Mm -hmm. And and that would, goes back to the John D. thing as well, who, when he was trying to contact angels, angels would stare at these different glyphs. It's supposed to open up your mind. So he's doing that first, and then he'll take the drugs. Right. Give it a little primer there. He, he says, in dreams, often I have glimpsed what I'm trying to look at here, but I'm not able to recall it in waking life. And there's a great dramatic, you know, when I do this and if I succeed, time will exist for me no longer. So uh, Chalmers tells Frank to get ready with the pad and paper. Mm -hmm. This is now this is something that was really crazy to me. When he pops the pill, the clock in the room stops ticking. Yeah, that's pretty creepy because it's not just the guy tripping out on some drugs. Yes. He's affecting the, the real world. I know. Somehow, by doing this. Yeah, that was a great touch and allows the narrator, although the narrator sort of remains skeptical throughout, but seeing that, it, well, maybe I should wait around to see what happens. And the mad scientistness is awesome because right as he's about to take the drug, Frank says, hey, you know, you're, you're taking a big risk by doing this. He says, don't be an asinine old woman. <laughs> remain silent while I study these charts. But he says, you know, the forces that control time approve of his experiment. And that's why time, time stopped when he swallowed the drug. Yep. Obviously, he didn't time time didn't stop. The clock just did. No. Still, it's a good it's a good effect. Chalmers closes his eyes and he starts telling Frank what he sees. And he can perceive the room through his eyelids, even though it's sort of muted. Mm -hmm. It's dark, but he can, he can still make out shapes and things. And he feels like just outside of the room, there's some sort of great leap that he needs to make. And it's either in time or space. He really can't explain explain it but then he, he goes i've got to do it and he doesn't he jumps and he just starts screaming i can see i can see <laughs> it's just like one of my you know how simpsons lines kind of work their way into your vocabulary you don't even remember where yeah. it's from but there was one episode a long time ago where a poo brought in some indian food for the family and it's a uh -huh. curry it's really really hot and lisa eats it and and starts struggling Ooh, lisa is that too spicy for you i can see through time and that's <laughs> I can see through time is one of my favorite lines that show has ever produced. You know, I always wondered if that was a Dune reference. You know, seeing through time with the spice. And, you know, she was having spicy curry. So maybe that was that. I don't know. It's not an exact quote. I don't think it says that in the books anywhere. But <laughs> I, I just always love that line. Frank uh, sees him freaking out and starts to wake him. He goes, wait, am I, am I pulling you back now? Am I pulling you back now? He goes, no, 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 no. It's working. It's working. He starts describing he can see basically all of human history yeah. and everyone in it through all of these things that he's experiencing and he's experiencing them as the greatest of people and also as the lowest of people and it's all of these events from the past 
I was curious. He doesn't say anything about the future. I thought he might throw in a few. Yeah. And I was flying in the, you know, the sky chariots. He does mention um, Lemuria. Lemuria, yeah. He also mentions one of the things. He says, the elder race is a strange horde of black dwarves overwhelming Asia. And I thought to myself, is that the worms of the earth slash children of the night? But things get creepy. He talks about how he sees curved time, how time is curved and space is curved. You know, that's a common uh, thing in physics. But he also sees that there's some angular time and that in it, this angular time, there are some beings or some creatures, something in there. And he pushes further back in time, past the dinosaurs, past the single-celled organisms. The further he goes back in time, the more of this angled time there is and less of the curved time. And he starts to feel a bit afraid of it, but he has to know, Mm -hmm. so he kind of pushes past this angled time. By simply straining, I can see farther and farther back, so he just goes like... (laughs) (laughs) Like that. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you guys didn't know what straining sounded like. Yeah, that's it. There you go. There is an abyss of being which man has never fathomed. Mm -hmm. And then he sees that there's something moving through these angles. They have no bodies, and they can only move through the angles of time. They can't move through these curves that our kind live in all human life on Earth and all life on Earth, really. Frank, back in the room, he starts to smell something really horrible. Mm -hmm. And he opens up the window because he's like, oh, man, this is... What did he eat before he did this? This is terrible. (laughs) What was all that straining? (laughs) Go back in time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good fart joke. He turns back to Chalmers and... Chalmers is making such a crazy face that it almost makes Frank faint. Yeah. Chalmers says, I think they have scented me, these creatures. And he starts to really go crazy. He crawls mm-hmm. around on the floor, Chalmers does, and he starts barking like a dog and writhing around. And then Frank grabs him and he's like, okay, this is the time we got to get him out of this. Chalmers, Chalmers, and he shakes him and he drags him to the sofa. Which, uh, I don't know, this whole plan seems like it's got some holes in it. I mean, if he's on a drug, it's not like you can, can you shake somebody out of being on drugs, you know? Well, you know, uh, but I think it's, the drugs opened up his perception and he he's controlling where he goes with his perception. Yeah, so you just need somebody there to go, hey, hey, I'm here, to kind of like... Yeah, and kind of follow that voice back to... Your guide when you're going on a trip, kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, all right, that's, all right. that's what I see. So Chalmers calms down a bit, and he wants some whiskey, of course. Sure. Uh, and after hard squig, he tells Franks that they almost got him. Chalmers, you know, he lament, he's like, oh, I went too far. I shouldn't have done it. Now they have my scent. They've scented me in time. But the worst thing was when he went that far back in time, he saw something horrible. He saw a horrible deed. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, Frank, Frank, a terrible and unspeakable deed was done in the beginning. Before time, the deed... And from the deed. The seeds of the deed move through the angles in dim recesses of time. Man, what is he talking about? What is this deed? What could have happened? Yeah, it was some awful thing that happened at the beginning of time. Right. The, th- the thing about the deed, it rang bells in my head when he kept talking about the deed. I could hear Lehman saying there had been a deed in my head. It was like we had some story like this right. before. I flipped back through. It was one of our episodes back in Duncember when we were covering Dunsany. It was a story called The House of the Sphinx. And there was this deed that had happened right. in the Sphinx Temple that went unsaid. And, you know, that may very well have influenced the section here. Sure. Could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although I think the implication is that this is some kind of original sin that's far different than what we perceive that as. Mm-hmm. But here's some excerpts of description of these, these creatures. No words in our language can describe them. He spoke in a hoarse whisper. They are symbolized vaguely in the myth of the fall, and in an obscene form which is occasionally found engraved on ancient tablets. The Greeks had a name for them which veiled their essential foulness. The tree, the snake, and the apple, these are the vague symbols of a most awful mystery. 
all the evil in the universe was concentrated in their lean, hungry bodies. Or had they bodies? I saw them only for a moment. I cannot be certain. But I heard them breathe. Indescribably, for a moment, I felt their breath upon my face. They turned toward me and I fled, screaming. In a single moment, I fled, screaming through time. I fled down quintillions of years. But they scented me. Men awakened them cosmic hungers. We have escaped momentarily from the foulness that rings them round. They thirst for that in us which is clean, which emerged from the deed without stain. There is a part of us which did not partake in the deed, and that they hate. But do not imagine that they are literally, prosaically evil. They are beyond good and evil as we know it. They are that which in the beginning fell away from cleanliness. Through the deed they became bodies of death, receptacles of all foulness. But they are not evil in our sense, because in the spheres through which they move there is no thought, no morals, no right or wrong as we understand it. There is merely the pure and the foul. The foul expresses itself through angles, the pure through curves. Man, the pure part of him, is descended from a curve. Do not laugh. I mean that literally. So they're not literally hounds. No, no, no. I think the, the, why they're called hounds is that they uh, track a scent. Yeah. They kind of, they get a whiff of you and they're able to, to, to hunt you down like a hound would. Right. A lot of authors have kind of made them hound-like in, in shape or more in behavior. You know, I did myself in my short story stack time, which you can find in Shotguns vs. Cthulhu from Stoneskin Press. Boom, there you go. I was hoping you'd work that in. <laughs> a very good story. So they were, they were kind of hound-like in that one. Yeah, and I took it a step further where it wasn't just one hound, they worked as a pack. Some of the stuff sounds a little like a Dave Mustaine rant or something like that because, uh, you know, the angles are bad and the, the curves are good. Like, you know, curved sound waves are analog and when it becomes angular, it's digital, <laughs> right, right. you know, so it's like <laughs> humans are analog and the hounds are digital. They can only work in digital media. But Frank thinks all this talk is nutty and he tells Chalmers, I'm going to send a guy to see you. He's a doctor. He's a nice guy. Let him look you over because you need help. And I'm done listening to you talk because you're just being a nutty fruitcake. So I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which takes us into the second chapter. The next day, Chalmers calls Frank and asks him to come over. Well, he begs him and he cries and makes a big scene. And he wants him to bring over some plaster of Paris. Mm -hmm. And reluctantly, Frank agrees. When he gets there, Chalmers is on crazy level 11. He just kind of barks orders at him and he tells him to start mixing the plaster because he's got to keep the hounds at bay. Now he understands that they can only see, uh, they only get to him via angles, like actual physical angles in our world. So we, we're going to use this plaster and we're going to try and spherify. Is that a word? It is now. Clog up all the corners and round them out and round out everything. What I think is crazy is that Frank knows that there's no hope in dealing with him. So he goes, okay, I'll help you. And so he like, spends the whole day like <laughs> doing this. Yeah, with him. hours plastering up all the corners. And I, I thought it was, I mean, that's a really cool device, though, actually. The only way to defend yourself is you've got to be in a place with no angles, which is very difficult yeah. to do. I mean, I was even imagining after, the, after they rounded out all the corners that Frank would go, well, huh, that was a lot of work. Let me just open up my cigarette case here. Ah! <laughs> Monster jumps out of it. I mean, angles are in everything. I wonder if it has to be an introverted angle. Could it be a corner? Or does, what does it mean exactly to an angle? It just has to be lines intersecting each other at a point. Yeah, that's anything then. 
You're in trouble. But if you curve it out, that doesn't happen. So I, that's, yeah. they're just trying to curve everything out. After all that work, Frank is still pretty uh, frustrated with him. Chalmers wants him to wait around <laughs> to help him out. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, there's some rock-solid mad scientist stuff because Chalmers says, forgive me. I didn't mean to offend you. You have a superlative intellect, but I, I have a superhuman one. Yeah. <laughs> it's only natural that I should be aware of your limitations. Like, uh, what? I just plastered up all your crap. I spent all day doing your crazy loony stuff because I'm your friend. Yeah. And then you pull this stuff up and forget it. I'm out. Right. And then the next couple of chapters, we get some handouts to tell us what's going on. Here. <laughs> Clippings. The uh, yeah. first one is uh, the newspaper, the Partridgeville. Partridgeville? Yeah, yeah Partridgeville, Partridgeville Gazette. Is that? And this is from July 5th, 1928. It says, Earthquake Shakes Financial District. Yeah, around 2 a.m. and the, uh, the financial district got hit, wrecking the steeple of the First Baptist Church on Angel Hill. So it's the Partridgeville Gazette, so I'm imagining this is a, this is a made-up place. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, is this supposed to be Providence with the Baptist Church and Angel Hill? And Could be. I think he's just pulling that stuff. Right. That was, I mean, that was my take on it as yeah, well. Yeah, it's supposed to be like just a made-up New England town. Well, we get that to, which, you know, we don't know the significance of that yet, but it really shook things up. And then at 9 a.m. the next day, there's another article, a cult writer murdered by unknown guest. It's the murder of Halpin Chalmers. Yeah, so it didn't work out for him. He was found in an empty room. All of his furniture was gone. Right. It was just completely empty room, and it's that room that has been plastered over all the corners and stuff. Yeah, and he was discovered because a neighbor went out to get the paper and smelled something awful coming from that apartment. It said he, he was obliged to hold his nose when he approached. I got the feeling that he wouldn't have said anything, but in, in this great little moment of self-interest, he goes, oh, maybe he left the gas on in there. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be bad for all of us. So, he, you know, he goes to to knock on the door and nobody answers. So he gets the superintendent to come back with a pass key. And I really liked this section here. Very Lovecraftian. When they open it up, they see that it's empty, as we said. This is a description of what happened. When the neighbor first glanced at the floor, his heart went cold within him. And the superintendent, without saying a word, walked to the open window and stared at the building opposite for fully five minutes. It was just so horrible what they saw. Uh, that's an odd behavior, though. Just yeah. don't talk about it. Just go to the window, stare out. Just, well, you just needed a few minutes to, you know, pull it together. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. But it, Chalmers was nude and covered in bluish pus. There's no trace of blood. And his head had been completely taken off from his body. Mm -hmm. And it was just lying on his chest. And here and there, the plaster had cracked and fallen away to reveal the angles in the walls and ceiling. Mm -hmm. And that cracked plaster, when it hit the on the ground, has been grouped around Chalmers to form this perfect triangle. It's a really odd scene they come in on. I almost feel like the story could have started here, you know, right. discovering this body. And did the hounds do that? Well, I think that's what the earthquake was. The earthquake is what shook the the house, made the plaster crack and fall, and then that gave them their, their in to get to him. But the plaster arranged in the triangle. Obviously, Chalmers didn't do that. Maybe they did, but I mean, what did they do to him and why? Why did they drain all of his blood and why did they put his head on his body? I don't, I don't know. Though obviously, there's some intelligence there or some reason for doing these various particular things. That doesn't seem like an animal attack. Well, there's some scrawled journal entries by the body. Of course. And one of them, Chalmers says, I sit by the window and watch walls and ceiling. I do not believe they can reach me, but beware of the doles. Perhaps they can help them break through. Now, uh, are doles like burrowing creatures, like the bulls? We've talked about this before. Yeah, I think, yeah, the doles are the subterranean earth-shaking. I know in the mythos, the Cthulhu mythos stuff, the mm -hmm. doles are gigantic worm creatures that live under the earth, and you know they're horrible things, but they do make earthquakes and stuff. They were talked about in Whisper in the Darkness and 
Right. That's obviously what caused, well, not obviously, but for us, that's what caused the earthquake. Sure. So they did help them out. Somehow the, 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 the hounds made a deal with these doles to help them out by breaking that. Now, that's pretty scary that they have these powers to control the environment as well. Or that they have allegiances if they can get these creatures to, to do things. Yeah. And in the in the journal entries, he says the plaster's falling in. He tries the Einstein formula, whatever that is. Nothing mm-hmm. helps. Smoke pours through the corners that have been revealed. And all he describes of, of them at the last, they are breaking through. Smoke is pouring from the corners of the wall. Their tongues. Ah, he writes. Ah, he wrote that down. <laughs> He wrote down five H's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, that's enough. At least we know that they have tongues or something that looks like a tongue. Yeah. That's the only real uh, concrete description we get. Now, in the opinion of the detective, Sergeant Douglas, Chalmers was poisoned by some obscure chemical. He took the strange blue slime found on Chalmers' body and sent it off to the lab. In the next chapter, we get some lab results, which is there's no semen in it. <laughs> the detective says, we didn't ask you for that analysis. <laughs> lab guy says, What? I mean, don't you watch TV? That's all we do. We check for semen. <laughs> Sometimes we eat sandwiches. No, no, they do eat sandwiches while they're doing autopsies. Oh, that's right. If you're a lab yeah. guy, I think it's just that if they come to speak with you, you walk around signing things for no yeah. reason and you know checking into the microscopes while you're having the conversation. Yeah, that's it. But they did test the blue pus. The chemist and bacteriologist who did it got some strange results. He says it's a, it lacks the peculiar substances known as enzymes. Enzymes are what you know break down cells. And the living ma- he's surprised that living matter can exist without enzymes. Biologists emphatically deny this is possible. Good God, do you realize what astounding new vistas this opens up? That's a pretty good discovery, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That there's life that completely different than our own. Yeah. Finally, we get an excerpt from The Secret Watchers of uh, by Halpin Chambers, something he was working on previously, I, I guess. guess. Yeah, maybe. I, I suppose. Probably as he was forming these theories. Excerpt from The Secret Watchers by the late Halpin Chalmers. What if, parallel to the life we know, there is another life that does not die, which lacks the elements that destroy our life? Perhaps, in another dimension, there is a different force from that which generates our life. Perhaps this force emits energy, or something similar to energy, which passes from the unknown dimension where it is and creates a new form of cell life in our dimension. No one knows that such new cell life does exist in our dimension. Ah, but I have seen its manifestations. I have talked with them. In my room at night I have talked with the doles, and in dreams I have seen their maker. I have stood on the dim shore beyond time and matter and seen it. It moves through strange curves and outrageous angles. Someday I shall travel in time and meet it face to face. Well, you got your wish, and it didn't turn out well. Thus endeth the story. You've always, when did you read this? You've, you've known oh my about God, this I read this years time. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've, I've loved this story. Well, I've read it again recently when I was uh, doing my story for Shotguns Beat Cthulhu. But you were developing, so you did something else. I did, yeah. Uh, Time Watch, the Time Watch role-playing game had a stretch goal for their Kickstarter of a Lovecraftian time travel game. I based it partially around this, but a, a lot of other Lovecraft time travel where you mentally project in time. You know, right, like, like Shadow Out of Time. That Shadow Out of Time, stuff like that. So I kind of mix those up, and the Hounds of Dindolis play a part in that game as well. Yeah, I'm pretty steeped in, in the Hounds. I think they're pretty cool, and I love deeply Mr. Long for bringing me the joy that is the Hounds of Tindalus. I gotta say, I mean, I didn't read a large amount of Clark Ashton Smith stuff, but between the two of them so far, I'm, I'm liking Long a lot better. Oh, yeah. It feels more um, approachable. 
to me, and also a little bit more on the sci-fi bend, which I like. And less of an imitation, because I feel like he's working in the same mode, but bringing in something kind of new. Yeah, I agree. It. So, so pretty cool. But I may be wrong about that. Here's the problem we want to keep doing long this month, but uh, it's hard to find his stuff for free online, probably because it's not public domain, I, I don't think. This one, luckily, was on Wikisource, but the other ones that we want to read are not freely available. We don't normally cover stories that aren't freely available for, for no. people to read, but there's a story called The Space Eaters that we're going to do next week. Yeah, we got we got this from the uh, Cthulhu Mythos Mega Pack, a Kindle book where it's a ton of stories for like 99 cents. I think it's it's really cheap. So we figured, yeah, let's give it a go. And we'll see if The Space Eaters is a good one. This is supposed to be Lovecraftian as well. I'm, I've never read it and I'm excited to. But if anybody knows there's a, a good place to get digital copies or just easily accessible copies that we'll pay for of, of Long's uh, work, especially his Lovecraftian stuff, please let us know. Yeah, it's hard to find that stuff. Not a lot of it in a digital format. And I know that some of the, the physical copy books are very expensive too. Looking for these stories, even in print, I couldn't find I couldn't find print versions because they're short stories, so they're in an anthology. So maybe I did see them, but didn't know that that particular story was in that anthology. So Yeah, right, right. So if anybody knows where we can find these stories, let us know. Yeah, let us know. And if we can't find it, maybe we'll pivot to some of the other authors in the Cthulhu Mythos Mega Pack because that's a pretty cheap book and it's got Lynn Carter in there and yep. a lot of other folks we haven't hit on yet that I'd be interested in reading. I want to say thank you as we close out once again to our wonderful reader, Greg Johnson. Greg, you are a treasure and a talent. Thank you so much. We also want to thank our advertiser once again, Cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort. It chronicles the rise and fall of one of the 20th century's most enigmatic cults, and it's available on Amazon. Please pick it up. Last but not least, I want to thank all of our backers for our live shows in Providence and Chicago. We're going to see you uh, in August and then again in in Chicago in October. So it'll be awesome to... To hug and touch some of you people. Mm, yes. Hug. <laughs> wow, that sounded a little creepy. Uh, but I like it. All right, good. Well, we'll see you all then. And for this episode, we're signing off. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.